Good morning, everybody. It's, it's really lovely to see all your friendly eyebrows and, and to have you here with us. And as Helen mentioned, we are returning to our series on working through the book of, of Mark. It's been going on for, I don't know, how many months now, Ant? About a year. Uh, and occasionally we'll, we'll do something else when it's appropriate, but we'll keep coming back to the, the theme that we're preaching through at this stage. And it's fallen to me today to speak uh, to you around the scriptures that we find in Mark chapter 11, and in particular the first 20 verses. So I'd like to read those to you. It should come up on the, the screen behind me. Chapter 11 and verse 1 says, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. And they went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. And as they untied it, some people standing there asked, Why are you untying that colt? And they answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. And many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread branches they had cut in the fields. And those who went ahead of the, and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts, and he looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went on to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find if it had any fruit. And when, they re and when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. And then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it into a den of robbers? The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city and in the morning as they went along, they saw the tree withered from the roots. And Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. The context and the background for where we are in this scripture is that we are in the last six days of Jesus' time before he's crucified. We're in a very intense time. He's coming back to Jerusalem, and we'll talk about his entry in just a moment or two. But he's teaching very fervently at this time, things that are really, really important to him. If you're going to be leaving people behind and, and your relationship with them is going to be restricted, those last words you have are words of importance to you. And so in this week, we find a rich vein of teaching taking place. And it starts, I'd like to just start working through um, the Scripture, and there's a particular area where I'm going to stop and spend some more time. Just let me find the beginning of what I'm doing. As they come to Bethany, as they get to the Mount of Olives and they get before the town of Bethany, Jesus sends two of his, his disciples out and says to them, if you're going to this town, you're going to find an unridden colt of a, of a donkey 
bring that to me. And if anybody queries you and asks you, tell them that the Lord has need of it and they will let you have it and that he intends to give it back. I have a booming voice at the moment. I've always wanted a booming voice. Now I've got a humming voice. How's that? There we go. And I have a slightly booming voice, but less of a humming voice. Um, we don't know. It doesn't make clear to us whether this was an entirely supernatural occurrence because was the donkey just there? Had Jesus arranged the donkey before the time? Were the people instructed? Had somebody heard from the Lord and put their donkey out there? But what we know is that donkey is brought to Jesus, one that has never been broken, that's never been ridden before, and he's able to climb on his back and ride with dignity into Jerusalem. And in doing so, he fulfills prophecy. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And it's interesting that up until this time, if you look at Jesus' miracles that he performed in his teaching, that he quite actively was dissuading people from spreading the news that he was the Messiah up until this point. He would often do things and say to people, but don't tell them that. When he spoke to his disciples and they said, this person, these people think you're this and those people think you're that, he didn't say to them, go out and tell people I'm the Messiah. But at this point, he does embrace that and begin to make that clear as he moves into Jerusalem. And anybody who has ears to hear and eyes to see who knew the Scriptures would have picked up a reference from Zechariah that this man coming in is coming in as the Messiah. But the people greet him fervently. They throw down... Uh, their clothing on the ground, they throw down palm leaves, and they begin to shout and to cheer as he comes in riding on the donkey. And it says that they called out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And a Hosanna, even though it's often used as a praise the Lord, the actual strict translation of that is save us. Now, I, I happen to have preached round about Easter on this some time ago, and I talked about the fact that I think that many people who were shouting Hosanna were welcoming Jesus as a king into Jerusalem, but maybe for the wrong reasons. Even though they were welcoming him the right way, they weren't fully aware of what the impact of what he was going to do, what that was going to be. Because for many Israelites at that time, their expectation of the Messiah was of someone who would be a savior to the nation of Israel. And they would reference back to the time of the judges when Israel would fall into sin and they would be oppressed by the Amalekites or the Philistines or the Hittites or the Jebusites or the other Itzentites. And they would pray and cry out to God and God would raise up a judge, someone like a Gideon or a Samson or a Deborah or a Barak. And they would deliver Israel and restore the nation of Israel. And for some people, and I think for many people, their expectation of the Messiah was one of a social reformer and of a political reformer and of a military reformer. And so they were shouting out, save us, and probably what they were thinking was save us from the Romans. Although they are rejoicing for the right person, for many of them they're rejoicing for the wrong reason. And that's carried out by the fact that many of these people would have been standing in a crowd screaming crucify him just six days later because he hadn't done what they expected because what he does when he goes in is different to what they expected. He comes in on his donkey, and instead of going to confront the Romans, and if you want to follow up more of that teaching, it'll probably be on the podcast that we had at that stage. But he enters Jerusalem, and he goes to the temple courts. And it says that he went to the temple courts, looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Jesus at that time 
when he went in for these six days, was not staying in Jerusalem. He would go into Jerusalem in these six days, and he would teach, and in the evening he would withdraw. It was at a time when the teachers and the rulers of, of, of the temple and, and, and the teachers of the law were seeking to actually do him harm. It says later on in the scripture that they were seeking to kill him even. And so he was not staying in Jerusalem. At night he would go, and he was going to Bethany. And in fact, if you look in John chapter 12, you would find he was, that he was going, that he arrived that night at the home of Mary and Martha and of Lazarus and stayed with them. And that was the night that Mary broke a vase and anointed him for the funeral that would come a week later. Um, so he goes away, and then something happens the next morning that I've avoided teaching on for a long time because I don't understand it or I don't say I understand anything about it now, but I haven't had a great understanding of it. And you have those parts of the Bible that you don't want to teach on because if people challenge you, you're going to go, I'm not really sure about that. Because something happens that seems uncharacteristic of Jesus. As he comes back the next morning, it says, on Monday morning he returns to Jerusalem. And I want to say this before I, I, I read the Scripture. There are those who think that the clearing of the temple was some sort of an angry response from Jesus, that he went and he saw these people doing these things and he got so angry and overcome that he began to vent his temper and throw over the tables and, ch and chase people out. It was a considered action. He had come in the night before. He had looked and it says here he had seen everything that was going on. He'd gone back to, to Bethany that night to the house of Lazarus. There'd been a meal in his, in his, in his honor. He'd had his feet anointed. This was not a spontaneous action of, of anger. This was a considered teaching that Jesus was going to do in a time of very intense teaching because it, it kicks off already when he starts on his way back to the temple. It says, that morning, seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went out to find if it had any fruit. When he reached it and found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs, he said to the tree, may no one ever eat from you again, and his disciples heard him say it. Now, I've struggled with this because that sounds like a petulant person. I feel like some fruit this morning. This tree, which is out of season for fruit, is not giving me fruit, so in my anger I will curse you. And I've really struggled with that because I don't find that anywhere in the character and the nature of Christ that's revealed in all the other Gospels and all the other things that he does. He's not selfish. He's not self-seeking. He doesn't use his power to, to, to vindicate himself or, or to, to, to do things for himself. And yet he turns this tree in front of his disciples and he says, basically, you cursed. You're not going to be able to deliver fruit anymore. And it's in this passage of Scripture, and it's really, I've struggled with it, that this little story's in there, and then he goes on and clears the temple. And, and why is this fig tree story here? It must be important. And so it was put into my mental file of things to find out later, and I've skirted it and circled it. And when I've taught on this section, I've just read that and moved on to the cleansing of the temple, which I can speak on with more confidence that I believe I have some idea of what's going on there. Ant gave me a gift this last week. He gave me a book, a commentary on the New Testament by a dear friend of this church who's passed away now, Michael Eaton. And as I began to read through Michael Eaton's commentary on this, he talks about this event that happens here as being an acted, miraculous parable. Jesus was doing this deliberately, he believes, to actually teach a lesson to his disciples because as he comes up to the tree, the tree is displaying leaves, which should indicate that it's fruiting. But when he gets there, the promise that the tree is giving, that it's a place that you can find sustenance, that you can find fruit, that you can find something of value, is not carried out by what he finds. 
And so he speaks very harshly to that tree, and as we see later, the tree actually withers and dies. And then from that, he sets off to the temple. He's on his way to confront religious practice, and I want to read what I wrote because I don't want to, to, to miss some of the things that were in my mind as I prepared. Jesus is on his way to confront religious practice, which has all the trappings of greatness. If you think about it, the beautiful temple, God's dressed in, 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 in armor and with, with uniforms, decorations everywhere, um, impressively dressed priests, dignified scholars. It looks like a place to receive spiritual food, but in actual fact, it's become a marketplace for financial gain, and due to the corruption and arrogance of the religious leaders, it actually the temple and what it stood for had nothing to offer Israel. The temple was the center of the Jewish faith. It was the place where Jews came to worship God. It came from the old tabernacle, which they started to have in the wilderness, and the pillar of fire would move before them at night and the pillar of cloud before the day. And when they got to a place where they would camp, they would set up the tabernacle as the place where God would meet with them, and the pillar of cloud or fire would descend onto the tabernacle, and you went there to meet with God. That was the center of their faith. There was one place where there was a holy of holies. You went to the synagogues to go and discuss and read and teach. But when you went to worship, you went up to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. It was the center. And it stood for the provision of God. It stood for the place where you could get the teaching and the word of God given to you in a way that could sustain you. And yet what it had become was something entirely different. It still had all the trappings. It had all the leaves on the outside. But in terms of what was inside, in terms of fruit, there was no fruit. And Jesus continues his teaching when he goes into the temple and he begins to drive people out. I want to stop there before I go into the temple and say this is not the first time that a fig tree has been involved in Jesus' teaching and not very dissimilar to what's happening here. In Luke chapter 13, verses 6 to 9, it says this, Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree, and I've found none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? So the man said, leave it alone for one more year, and I will dig around it and fertilize it, and if it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, cut it down. And there's an indication that God places a real emphasis and priority on the right kind of fruit, and that there is a a sense of wrong when something presents itself as being able to provide something and supposed to provide something and actually is misleading people, is bringing people to something of no value. A number of teachings of Jesus relate the importance of fruit, revealing the true nature of who we are and establishing the credibility of people's faith. Um, John the Baptist, for example, said in Matthew chapter 3, verse 10, the axe is already at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown in the fire. And he was speaking to people who were coming out to be baptized but weren't wanting to change their hearts. And he says to them before this, he says, you, you, you say that you're okay because you're the sons of Abraham. He says, you can raise up sons of Abraham from the rocks. He says, but the, the, the axe is already laid at the root of the tree to cut down that which doesn't produce. It's, it, it's very strong. This is very strong teaching. This is very... Uh, almost scary teaching when you think about it. And in one of the commentaries I looked about when I, online when I was reading up this passage for today, it said this, in all the works in the ministry of Jesus, this is the only destructive miracle. The Old Testament is filled with miracles of destruction and judgment, but Jesus most perfectly showed us the nature of God. 
If this was the only miracle of its kind, we must see there was a great and important lesson in it. God doesn't approve when there is profession, profession without reality and talk without walk. And it's in this context that Jesus comes into the temple, into this place that is supposed to provide for the nation of Israel, into this place that is tended by people who have been called by God out to be priests and teachers and who should be giving the people a relationship with God and the truth of the reality of what He's given them, even in the law of Moses. And instead, it's become a den of traders and people who are misleading, and it's a place of greed and a place of pride. And what's worst of all is the religious leaders of the day are approving of what's going in this place. And in fact, when we read that Jesus goes in and clears, instead of them rejoicing and saying, at last someone has come to clear the temple, they want to kill him. They want to maintain that status. They want to keep having the people of Israel coming to a place that has nothing to give them. And Jesus won't let that continue without challenging it. It's in this context that he enters the temple courtyards and clears them. It's a forceful and physical, but it's not an act of a personal petulance. It's, not, it's an act of teaching and a very important lesson. In verse 7, when we read it, it says, as he was doing that, it says, as he taught them. Let's just have a look at that. On reaching Jerusalem, this is verse 15. Sorry, um, On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables and the money chargers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, I haven't noticed that much before. As he's doing this, as he's throwing these things over, as he's going physically through the place and casting these people out, the Scripture says, and as he taught them, he says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it the den of robbers. This was an act of teaching. This was not Jesus giving into emotion of the incredible insult that had been brought against his father by what was being done. This was Jesus saying, don't let a place mislead you that it has something to give you that there's nothing to be gained from. Don't give your attention. Don't give your allegiance. Don't give your future, don't give your destiny to a place that has nothing to offer you. Make sure you go to the right place for what you're needing. So what's the lesson for you and me? How am I doing for time? We're going to get there. I'd like to apply this to a scripture that you find in Matthew chapter 7 and verses 15 to 20. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. Thus, by your fruit, by their fruit, you will recognize them. This, this little passage, when you try and read it, is like doing that Peter Piper picked a pack of perfect peanuts or whatever it might be. It, it, it's a bit of a tongue twister because it's good trees and bad trees and good fruit and bad fruit. But the message coming through is this. When you give your ears to people, when you trust people, when you look for your sustenance from people, choose people that has fruit commensurate with what they're saying they are. A temple full of priests that had all the outward trappings, who had the dignity, who had the calling, who had the name that they came from Aaron, that they were the people to be called, that were established there by the authorities of the country, guarded by gods in a temple that was built along lines that was ordained by God himself. You would think you were safe there. 
but there was no fruit. And Jesus reacts as strongly in his teaching against that as he did in the example that he had of the, of the tree, but he keeps that theme going. Anton and I went in a conversation recently, and he spoke about how preaching through Scripture can be used by God to bring things relevant even to that day. Because when, when you're preaching through Scripture, you kind of, it's, it, it seems like we're going to preach on this today, even no matter what's happening around us. It, it's not being, this has happened this week, and this is what we pluck out. And yet, time and again, it can be relevant. And for me, this is really, really, really relevant at this time. The temple was a popular and loud voice of public statement of the time. It was big and impressive. And through the priests and teachers of the Lord, the supposed opinion of God was given. But standing in his courtyards at that very moment, that these false impressions of what God wants to do are being given by the temple, standing right in the temple court is the incarnate word of God himself. And so the question I have for you, who are you listening to? At this time, there are many challenges. We know that, and we talk about it quite a bit. And the challenges are, are medical they're economic, and they're social. And several of them have risen to great prominence, and we have all sorts of crises coming upon us. We're being locked down and unlocked and locked down again. And people are responding to that in different ways. And we have the political challenges and the social challenges that have come around in identifying the cruelty of, of, of racism that's been taking place institutionally and it's being challenged and it's being done in, 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 in ways that everybody's having a say. And at the same time, we're looking at the political structure of the country and the way the government's doing things, and people have very strong feelings. And into this time of turmoil, many voices are speaking, often with what seem to be platforms that give them dignity and give them encouragement to, 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 to speak out and say, this is what we should be doing, and this is what's right, and this is what's wrong. And it's quite difficult for people to know who to listen to. Anne spoke last week about the fact that there's, it's a rife time for conspiracy theories. The best time to spread conspiracy theories is when people are afraid. The best time to foment discord socially is when people are afraid. And what I'm doing when I, when I, when I look online, and, and, and like you, I'm, I'm being bombarded with podcasts and, and, and memes and all sorts of things that people are giving their opinions of what's going on, what I'm seeing is a lot of anger. And anger comes from fear. And am I supposed to be listening to scared people? Is that where I'm supposed to be getting my, my understanding of how I should respond to the regulations that are going on? How should I respond to lockdown? How should I respond to, to, to the constraints that are being placed? Are the people I'm supposed to be listening to the angry people, the fruit of whose ministry is fear and suspicion and, 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 and a, a turning to being scared of our neighbors and, 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 as Ant mentioned, being told to spy on our neighbors and things? Is, is that fear that's being propagated by various people, what I should be responding to. No matter what it looks like, for me, there's one thing that I need to say. In Hebrews 12, verse 1, it says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles. Everything that hinders us. That includes my own opinion. That includes the opinion of my best friend. That includes the opinion of my favorite preacher. Anything that might hinder me, and let us run with perseverance the race marked for us. Listen to this. Listen to this, please. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. The author and finisher of our faith. Where should I be looking? I should be filtering what's coming in, what's pouring into me from all of these sources and saying, what's the fruit of these people that are speaking to me? What, what do I see in their lives? 
because I'll know them by their fruit. Do I see encouragement? Do I see confidence? Do I see peace? Do I see reconciliation? Do I see help? Or do do I see anger? Do I see suspicion? Do I see fear? Who should I be listening to? Everything I listen to, from my understanding, should be strained through God's Word and the personality and the person of Jesus Christ. Would He say that? When I was young, we wore these what would Jesus do bangles, and a lot of people wore them because it was a fashion statement and a lot of sports, but actually the challenge was when you're in a situation, how would you respond? And you would ask yourself the question, what would Jesus do in this situation? And I would say to you, when you are bombarded at this time, when the temple is screaming things to you, when the fig tree's leaves are saying, here is sustenance for you, ask yourself, what would Jesus say? What would Jesus do in this situation? What does the Word of God say about this fearful thing that people say. You know, guys, bottom line is this. God's not been caught unawares by this pandemic or by this economy. And He promised me He would look after me. He promised He will fulfill His purpose in my life. Is that going to be easy? When I last spoke, I said, it's not always easy. We had a bit of an anus horribles. No promise it's going to be easy, but a promise that He has a plan and a purpose that He will fulfill. And that has to be the highest calling of my life. So why don't I listen to what propagates that? Why don't I listen to His Word and not what people want to make that to back up their philosophical theory or their preference or their opinion or their, what they want? And, you know, guys, it's hard sometimes because I want to listen to things that people that I like say. And sometimes I can't agree with it. And sometimes I don't want to listen to what people I don't like say. I want to discard that. But there is one bottom line. The fruit that we should eat is the fruit that comes from a tree that is showing that fruit regularly. And if it's not, there's no tolerance from God for false teaching. There's no tolerance from God for misleading people into, you know, when you give a baby a dummy, it thinks it's getting food. You realize, we actually, we con them all the time, the poor little guys. They're uncomfortable, they're hungry, and they start screeching for food, and we stick a dummy in their mouth, and think, here comes food, and all the the, the, the mechanisms in their body shuts down and says, I'm content, and they're getting absolutely nothing to sustain them. Don't go out looking for dummies. Right now, we, we, we get challenged, and we get frightened, and we cry out, and there are loads of dummies. We, someone can stick something in your mouth to suck that you like. That, that's what you want to believe. But does it measure up to the truth of God's Word? Just a bunch of leaves, or is there a fig in there somewhere? When I spoke the last time about the temple and about Jesus coming to Jerusalem, I said, God's more interested in your temple than He is in your Romans. Here's my catchphrase for today. Don't be distracted by the leaves. Look for the fruit. Don't be distracted by the trappings. Don't be distracted by who is saying something. Does it line up with God's Word? I encourage you, when you go home this afternoon, have a look and see whether I've spoken the truth. Go and check God's Word. Don't listen to me. All I'm doing is stirring you up to think about what God is saying. But go and check it out. Because we need to stand on something firm. We need to feed from trees that are good trees and that have a track record of showing that. And that's, I guess, what I want to say to you this morning. So let's pray. Father, thank you for good food. Thank you for fruit. Thank you for the fruit of your word. Thank you that we have the opportunity to eat that and to produce good fruit in our lives. And we ask you, Lord, to help us to be good fruit inspectors, as it were to look for your voice, to look for your guidance, to look for your teaching.
and to be encouraged by that even in the midst of so much information coming our way. Thank you for the teaching of your word. Thank you that even the difficult parts have something to tell us and even those that we don't always understand have something to challenge us by. And I pray, Lord, that you honor your promise that your word won't be sent out and come back to you without achieving the purpose that you sent it for. And so I pray that your word will have a changing effect in our life this morning. Amen.